0: okay, first one biblical inerrancy, while true is not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith
1: false everyone's
0: right. afraid to say <laughs> false yeah, yeah I, I mean there's a there's a there's a sense in which there are some people who don't believe in inerrancy and we can still call them Christians the same time we said that really the, the question of inerrancy really becomes a bellwether issue it, it, it really says something about what we believe not only about the Bible but also about what we believe about God and his, his character itself so I, I think we can call this an essential doctrine of the Christian faith number two when Matthew and Mark cite Jesus in their respective gospels they always cite him identically So why is that not a violation of inerrancy? Then
1: one of them's wrong, right? We mm-hmm. mm-hmm. wouldn't need both of them to write it if they were going right to write the exact same thing. Okay. okay, different perspective. Yeah, the, uh, perspective, perspective, okay, different you, perspective. What they saw, the way they each saw it, but it's still according to God's <clears> word. <throat>
0: <throat> okay, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing perspective. Is that the right word to use no. there?
1: The personal. Style.
0: Okay, some some stylistic differences, mm-hmm. oh. right. And and
1: purposes for the book. Yeah. Or for the
0: right. So so purposes for the book can determine what pieces of the speech are, are written. Recorded.
1: I think you even mentioned like Peter being a fisherman, right? Here's a right. position, so that could be more technical in nature. Yeah, so
0: not only stylistic, but changes in, but differences of vocab, vocabulary that mm-hmm. we we can still have different sentences, words communicating the self same information without without uh, violating the spirit of inerrancy here. So, yes. Number three, the very best English translations are exact word-for-word word translations. Pause. <laughs> <False. False. laughs> why not? Well, right. exactly.
1: the transfer of language. Some words don't exist. Right.
0: Exactly. The transfer of languages, yes. Yeah, so, so sometimes it's a matter of words not existing, but very often it's the idea of forms not existing. You, have, you know, different features of language that uh, don't correspond from language to language we talked about idioms and paratactic and hypotactic languages last time and uh, poetry how that shows up <laughs> differently in different languages and such so uh, so all of those things come together that does not threaten inerrancy uh, but it does does mean that we have variations uh, that take place and that's acceptable so I uh, there's a really good article by Rod Decker on verbal plenary inspiration and translation. A little bit technical at times, but uh does a really good job of explaining here um, how, how it is that we can, how we can have a variety of translations um, and, you know, some of them quite precise and yet not necessarily the best. Uh, so uh, he, he does a very good job with that. I recommend that to you if you. Uh, have nothing to do tonight. It's, good. it's a good read. So we're in the middle of page 52 here, and we're right, we sort of cut off right in the middle last time. We're talking about inerrancy still, and then we, we said we needed to put some qualifications on this idea that there are no errors, no the, the, the scriptures do not fail, they, there are no errors in them. And we said, uh, first of all, the doctrine of inerrancy speaks to accuracy but not exactness. Gave some examples here of of uh, measurements and such, and, and uh, numbers that were apparently pro- approximations, <coughs> and uh, that's an appropriate way of, of writing. It, it may not be as precise as it could be, but it's no less accurate for for not being so precise. Uh, we also said, and that uh, that the doctrine of veracity speaks to the original manuscripts only. Uh, and uh, with that little line there, that translators are always traitors, because not not because they're nefarious people, uh, but because as the translation takes place, there's always something that's lost, given up. Um, even in the very best of translations, something something's lost. You know, when, when you translate an idiom or a poem. From one, translate, trans, from one language to another, you, you just can't retain it. I mean, just, it's just impossible. Uh, you might be able—you may be able to reconstruct a poem from in another language, but if you're going to do that, you're going to have to be uh, uh, you know, quite free with, uh, with, the, with the kind of language you use. You can't translate poems and idioms from one language to another, okay? But that doesn't—that uh, doesn't mean that inerrancy is not true just means that it's restricted in its prop- most proper sense to the original manuscripts. Okay. The third one here, now, now we're cutting new turf here tonight, is that the doctrine of inerrancy is not upset by the limitations of human language or human finiteness. We've mentioned this one already uh, so we don't have to spend too much time here but let's, let's uh, revisit this idea here. We've seen before God created man as a linguistic creature. He, he made Adam speaking; didn't have to learn to speak. He made him speaking. He knew how to communicate, and it seems that the precise reason that uh, God made him a, a a communicating, a speaking creature was so that he could talk with them, so that he could communicate, reveal himself to them. So it's only as the scourge of evolution reaches into linguistic theory that you know we, we evolved from a bunch of grunts and groans and whistles and snorts uh, to words uh, that uh, that that we have this problem emerge. The whole reason God gave us language is so that He could properly communicate to us. Uh, that's why we we talk we talk about uh, uh, language as a received capacity so we talk about the received laws of language these aren't acquired or or invented per se now some are added of course but uh, but language comes to us already ready made and there's already rules and laws in place that uh, make language work And we simply adopt them uh, we don't invent them I say here the words of the biblical writers are regarded as the words of God without any hint of deficiency. There's a there's a, you know, a back and forth. There's a, a certain, as Warfield said, a certain conflation of God and man such that they're both saying the same thing, sometimes called the, the univocal principle here, that, that when we look at the Bible, even though there are two authors of a sort, it's not as though we've got two contributors. There's there's one contributor and that's God, and man then serves effectively as a transmitter. You know, he, he transmits the information that God has given, um, and so so he's not a, uh, he's not he's not adding anything to it. Remember that that was the the point in in Second Peter one. It's not of one's own origin. You know people didn't contribute to the uh, content of the of the word of god Uh, rather holy men of god spoke as they were moved along by the holy spirit so we find here second samuel twenty three two: the spirit of the lord spoke through me and his word was on my tongue jeremiah 36 the words of the lord are synonymous with the words of jeremiah it goes back and forth. First Corinthians 14.37 What I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So there's an identity with what uh, the scripture writers were writing and what God was saying. Okay. Was another qualification here. While the entry of sin has resulted in man using his capacity for language inefficiently, sometimes incorrectly. You know, we don't all speak well. We forget words, things like that. The miracle of inspiration seems precisely intended to overcome the problem of human depravity. So, uh, we could say, oh, depravity makes inerrancy impossible, but that's the whole point of inspiration. Inspiration is, is tailor-made to overcome the problem of depravity. That's why, that's why we have it. So God's self-disclosing impulse cannot be thwarted by depravity. He makes sure of that by inspiring the material. Another sort of a little linguistic question here along the way. I don't know if this one. Hey, sometimes you have wonder where to put these things, but uh, I put it here. What about literary genres? You know, you know, we we look at the scriptures and we say, okay, there's sometimes there's stories, sometimes there's parables, sometimes <clears throat> there's poems, sometimes there's you know, and so there, there's you know maybe a dozen different kinds of of literature that are used. Uh, So, and and as we look at those genres, we typically will say that those are of human invention, okay? Language is not of human invention, but these various forms of literature are not strictly divine in nature. It's not as though we we picked up all of these by reception. Some of these are invented. So what do we do with that? Because there's these inventive type techniques that are being used in the in the scriptures, is this a problem? Well, I say here, the various genres of human language are not of divine, but of human origin. There is no uniquely superior, divine, or heavenly genres to which the human authors turned when they were writing the Bible. Some people say that. But that's just not the case. These are of human invention. It's not to say, however, that the capacity for genre development is rendered hopeless by depravity. Humans, even in their depravity, will drink deeply at the well of God's common grace, make all sorts of aesthetic contributions, beauty, linguistic, scientific, other achievements. These may be borrowed capital, but can produce that, as what is, that which is genuinely good, beautiful, and true. Even an unbeliever can produce things that are good, beautiful, and true, even despite his depravity, because the image of God is such uh, that we still have these capacities, uh, you know, innate within us. Uh, It's it's not as though, you know, when Adam sinned, he was no longer able to speak any longer. Depravity didn't touch the capacities given to him in the divine image. He didn't. Lose his ability to rule any longer. He still has the Dominion mandate, you know, laid out in front of him. He has to he has to complete it so he can rule. He can speak, he can sing, he can write poetry. He can he can do all sorts of of, of things uh, that uh, are are his because God has equipped him with the skills to cultivate and develop these kinds of things. Um, and depravity doesn't stop the capacities. It you know, it slows things down, makes things difficult, m- makes things incomplete and ugly at times, but it does not do so uniformly that they cannot make contributions. So, uh, all of this to say that the literary genres, which are of human invention, are not such that they thwart the message of God that is being produced here, okay, any more than, you know, limitations of vocabulary do, okay. Thoughts on that? <clears throat> Number four. Doctrine of inerrancy is not threatened by changes in human culture. We've noted, Bob, again, that each of the human biblical authors assumes his own culture, including issues of dress, architecture, agriculture, music, marriage customs, etc. So... When we read particularly, I think it becomes even most clear in the Old Testament, but even in the New, there are things going on that we don't do anymore. Uh, uh, we don't, you know, build a roof parapet. What's with that? You know, why, why do we, why don't I need a fence around my roof? Well, you recognize that they're speaking in the customs of their day. That's biblical Osha.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was
0: biblical Osha. It's really what it was. Um, I actually I actually bring that up when when I, uh, when I when I when I when I teach some of my classes that I think I think that's what we have here. It it probably gives le- gives legitimacy to OSHA. Mm. Yeah, maybe there's some overreach there, but it gives legitimacy. You to say it. maybe <laughs> <laughs> some legitimacy. No, maybe but, there's overreach. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. There's overreach. <laughs> So, yeah, so these head coverings that are spoken of, and we scratch our heads and say, "What exactly is this?" And there's quite a bit of debate as to what are these head coverings. Uh, are they, are they, you know, are they, are they like a the burka, or they like a shawl, or are they, oh, or a veil? What, what, what is, what is this? And there's quite a bit of debate. Um, you've written on this of course, so, but, but there's, but. But that doesn't mean that the meaning is lost because of the customs of the day that are being discussed here. Now, sometimes we have to work a little harder.
1: Uh,
0: but uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that uh, we've, we've lost the meaning because we've moved on culturally. Also included here are issues of linguistic development and vocabulary. Words don't always mean the same thing, even in the scriptures. You know, There's time that goes past. There's evolution of the language such that words mean, you know, they, they, they develop nuances over time. And then, of course, there's, there's always the case that some words mean more than one thing at any one time. So, so, so there's development. Sometimes you have to do a little bit of extra work to, to ask the question, okay, what did that word mean then as opposed to later? I mean, those are those are kinds of questions that sometimes you need to ask. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the uh, that, that inerrancy is somehow an elusive, and impossible thing because we've because we've moved on culturally. Scripture thus speaks from the standpoint of specific cultures and two specific cultures, none of which are totally free of error. Culture is laced with evil at times. But due to the advantages of common grace, none of which are wholly corrupted so I mean they, these are these are mediums that can carry meaning and understanding and 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 uh, give us principles that uh, while uh, you know we you know, like with the parapet you know yeah we don't put fences up around our roofs, but we put fences along the stairwell right you know to make sure people don't fall off the edge okay and so 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 we can we can make the transition. And the translation from one culture to the next. Scripture may consistently be shown not to be a partaker of that which is evil in culture. And there is evil in culture. In fact, the Bible regularly confronts and regulates cultural vices rather than accommodating them. So we find information on divorce, slavery, not so much as an endorsement here, but as a regulation and a, you know, a a way of keeping the, uh, these vices at bay before they before they get out of control. <clears throat> so the doctrine of inerrancy is not threatened by culture, either evil in culture or changes in culture. And then number five, which perhaps we, is a little bit of a repeat here, the doctrine of inerrancy is not threatened by the dual author of Scripture, authorship of Scripture work of inspiration has been shown to be an organic confluence of human and divine not a mixture of two independent autonomous contributions one of which is human and the other is divine so despite the presence of two contributors the speak the scriptures speak univocally that's with one voice the bible's god's message not a combined message that is partly man's and partly god's Okay.
1: Would you elaborate on the distinction you made between confluence and mixture? <clears throat> yeah. when Okay.
0: Perhaps, perhaps the, uh, uh, an analogy might be the difference between a mixture and a compound. Um, you know, if, if you're a chemical guy, uh, you know, a mixture is something that each part is still observable um, and you know each part is it re- retains its identity. I, like if you try and mix oil and water, they they separate. They this they, they, and so it's, it's not it's not as though this is a mixture partly human and partly divine, but rather a confluence. The origin of all the material is divine. It is filtered through a, a human transmitter. But there's but there's a, there's one substance here and, and one meaning to the uh, to the to the to the information. That's what I mean there by the difference between a confluence and a, and a mixture. Uh, there's there's not two con- contributions that you can discern one from the other. And in fact, sometimes you'll read in commentaries that you know liberal commentaries where they'll talk about you know this is what yeah that this is this is something that the human inserted here you know. This is the, the you know in the in Pentateuch there's the J E D and P contributors and J J said this and E said this we can tell because it's a different hand well no it's it's all it's all divine filtered through human transmitters but it's all divine and it's singular in nature there's you can't distinguish multiple hands uh, oh, in the in the in the Pentateuch for instance but that that makes sense. I give a, an analogy here and sometimes analogies break down but uh, this is one that uh, John Frame uses in his book to the hypostatic union of Christ that is this this union of the human and divine in the person of Christ there's one person remember in the, the rubric for Christology is never uh, divide the person or conflate the natures uh, there's one person. The the, the the humanity that Christ has is it, it, to use the, the words of, of Paul here. A body was prepared for him. Okay, so it's an impersonal humanity. There's one person. The person is divine, and yet that single person now has control over two natures. Okay, um, but there's one personality here. There's no mixture of two persons, a human person and a divine person. There's one person, two natures. So also, inspiration sees divine agency controlling an essentially passive human agent. So there's a human involved here, but he's not making any contributions independently here. Uh, So... Again, that's not to be pressed to suggest that the Bible is somehow an extension or embodiment of God or Christ. Scriptures are not divine, nor an incarnation of the divine. So don't, don't hear me saying any more than I am. But the possession of two distinct but inseparable aspects, speaking and acting univocally, that is, in concert harmoniously with one voice, does become something of an apt parallel for us. Okay. So inerrancy, and uh, spend a lot of time on inspiration and inerrancy because these create the foundation, the backbone, the spine for uh, everything else we have to say about the scriptures. Any any thoughts here on inerrancy? What the implications are? Okay, a couple of more corollaries here, and they as we as we move along here. Uh, you're going to see here that the, uh, the, the the scriptural support is going to get scanter and scanter. So there's there's less and less, fewer and fewer Bible verses that we're going to be putting down. Uh, but the corollary, I think, remains strong. Uh, this one we'll have two verses. The next two we're going to have very few by way of, or, or and certainly an incomplete set of verses. Uh, so let's talk about these here and we'll start with the corollary and and uh, as we move along you're going to see why this corollary these corollaries become so important the idea of corollary well here's the first uh, corollary here with sufficiency since God's purpose in inspiration was to equip believers of every age saw that in second Timothy 3 it follows that the Bible is mm-hmm. a complete objective body of truth from God that is sufficient for that purpose. So he's, he wants to equip us for every age, and so whatever is in the Bible must do that adequately. The two verses we're going to appeal to here, we've already spoken of, uh, but I think they become important for us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching for rebuking for correcting for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work other translations say adequate or or uh, what's the King James have there the man of God may be thoroughly furnished I believe is the uh, truly truly the... furnished. furnished thank you <laughs> <laughs> sorry
1: <laughs> uh.
0: second Peter 1 3 another passage here it's in the same context of, of our discussion of verses 19 to 21 remotely perhaps perhaps you could make the case that the, 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 the context is not close enough but I think it is um, based on the, the walk through the chapter we did earlier that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the promises well, what promises? Well, the promises that are contained uh, ultimately and finally and most surely in the Christian scriptures with which that chapter ends. Okay, so uh, we have everything we need for life and godliness, enough to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So those are some two key passages that say the Bible gives us everything that we need. It's hard to believe sometimes. We, we, we imagine we need more, right? You know, we, you know, we have decisions to make that the, the, specificity that we need to make that, that decision isn't there. And we wish we could have, you know, you know, the, you know, think about the, the high school kids. Where am I going to go to college? Who am I going to marry? What's my job going to be? You know, you, and yeah, you know, you know, you know flip through the scriptures. It just doesn't say. Where where do I go? What do I do? Who do I marry? But it gives you what you need. And that's the promise. That it gives you what you need. Not what you think you need. But it does give you everything you need. And, as we're going to say, probably one of the biggest implications here is that we don't need anything else. It's not to say that we don't profit from counsel, good counsel, and, and, and helpers along the way. But we don't need anything else from God it's Been withheld that we have somehow have to, you know, get by some other means. God gives us the information here, everything we need. Okay, so some qualifications here, and and perhaps you're thinking here, you know, the Bible just does not tell me how I'm going to fix my car tonight, it's not running. You know, can't open up the Bible and you know, find a instruction manual and how to. You know, rebuild your carburetor or whatever it is. I want to rebuild the carburetor on my chainsaw. I don't so know how to do it. I'm suffering. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. so don't see help of others. What's a, what's a carburetor? Yes. <laughs> a carburetor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they still have them on these the 2 uh, yeah. <laughs> Are you oh. still
1: driving one of those? <laughs> no, I'm talking about my chainsaw. My chainsaw I've got. I, I, I
0: need to clean out my carburetor. Uh, but anyway. But we all recognize that the Bible doesn't contain every datum of information that exists. So how do we get away with talking about sufficiency? Well, it does not mean that the scriptures speak comprehensively about everything, or that nothing can be known apart from direct confirmation of scripture. This is actually a theory that's, you know, even out there, still encountered occasionally. I mean, when I was growing up, I grew up in a Christian school. And I remember that uh, the, uh, the the textbook Christian textbook makers uh, of, of the day that we were using uh, had this really funny idea about the sufficiency. You can't teach kids anything unless the Bible, you know, unless you can quote chapter and verse. Otherwise, you can't know anything with certainty. In fact, it was yeah, you know, it was you know how, how do you know how subtraction works? Well, there were. Twelve apostles and one apostatized, and then they were, it was called the eleven. So, so now you know subtraction works because there it is in the Bible. You know, addition, calculus—I have no idea how you can how to justify that. But, but, but at least, least we're rude today. <laughs> <son? laughs> <laughs> We got pi, but it's <laughs> only three <laughs> 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 <Algebra>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course we, are, we recognize that uh, hopefully we recognize here that there are there are bits of data and information that are out there and even procedures and and, and you know techniques and things that we use that aren't detailed uh, or corroborated in scripture. Mm-hmm. And the sufficiency of Scripture does not forbid the quest for knowledge that is additional to Scripture. There's information that's not in Scripture, and we can go find it. But it does insist that there are no more, and this is a word here that Frame uses, there are no more divine words for us to receive. All of the words that God intends to give us are included in the Bible. Okay, We've got everything we need.
1: Now, of course, this would be uh, denied by our charismatic. Folks, yes, it would. Um, which is what one of our objections to. I mean, they would have to deny this statement. Yes, right yes they would. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of the implications that we're
0: going yeah, to have okay. in the next page. Yes, that, uh, <clears throat> that yeah, any anything that, the, that that God purportedly says beyond what the Scripture says is not only unnecessary but also unwelcome because we have everything we need at, be- at, at, at best it can only repeat itself
1: at worst it's going to create conflict John said don't add or take away from it right so our charismatic friends like Gruden would say there are no more necessary words right, right. they would use the word necessary
0: or and in his case not even there are no more words that come to us in this inspired way yeah. Because he 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 talks about there's a prophecy that's an ongoing prophecy, but he says it can be partially mistaken. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that the uh, it's just a remarkable statement, and he persists in, in this. Wayne Grudem does uh, that uh, that uh, the information in order to distinguish it from Scripture. I appreciate that at least. He's trying to, to He's trying to
1: preserve the sufficiency of Scripture. Trying
0: to preserve the sufficiency of Scripture, but it just doesn't work if you've got more information coming. Um, and so, so he says what you have is a, uh, a, a possibly partially mistaken report of what God said. So in other words, God spoke into the mind of the individual, and they did their, their best to, to sort of report on what God said, but they don't have the... Uh, they don't have the, the miracle of inspiration to make sure to get it right uh, wow well, to me that's a that's a terrible bit of information to have that might be wrong okay so yeah i go to church and somebody speaks a bit a bit of prophecy might be wrong but hey it's, it's a little bit of a help well really <laughs> I, I i prefer to get stuff that's without error and sufficient so and that's what we have in the scriptures Secondly here, the sufficiency of scripture does not mean that say the spirit is not necessary for life and godliness. It's not as though we simply have the Bible and then, you know, the holy spirit is no longer necessary. The so scripture gives us all of the necessary content and even carry in themselves all of the warrant necessary for faith. Okay? So it you know, the the reason why we ought to believe them is contained right within them. But the cause of faith that is, what changes our depraved minds so that we will embrace what's there is the purview of the Scripture. It doesn't lie in the words. It's not as though there's something magical in the words that awakens, uh, uh, you know, awakens our, our, our appreciation and our acceptance of those words. It's something that's done to us externally by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is the purview of the Spirit of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that under the topic of illumination, which is one of the last topics we talk about here in, the, in this course. So, sufficiency does not mean either, and this is sometimes you hear something you hear as well that the purview of Scripture is limited to spiritual truth, because it says here it gives us everything we need for eternal life and godliness. That the Scripture speaks sufficiently for what we need to do ethically and morally in life, but it doesn't speak to anything else. Okay, That's sometimes what you hear, that it gives us necessary spiritual truth. But scripture gives us not only everything necessary for life and godliness, but also what I'll call here the transcendentals necessary to correlate all truth. Let's see if I can explain that. The scripture doesn't, comprehend truth in all of its infinite specificity it does not follow that there's a separate neutral realm of secular truth that is not affected by god it's free from any epistemological constraints that you know why is it you know why, why is it that uh, for instance uh, i can uh, a surgeon can you know cut into me and be sure that Every time he does that, it's pretty much going to be the same kind of stuff underneath every time. How, do, how does how does how he know that? Well, yeah, and 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 really, that's what science is based on—the ability to re- observe and repeat things over and again. Right? That those are those are, the, you know, those are the cardinal features of the scientific method here. But why do those things work? Why does that happen? Why can we? Why can the doctor be assured that when he opens up a person? You're going to have basically the same thing in every one, you know. You know, it's bigger, smaller, you know, deformed or something. But it's all going to be there. And it's going to be in the same place in every person. Why is that? Well, ultimately, it's because God is, and because God has spoken and made things that way. And so, well, the reason science works, the reason that information stays rather static at times, is because the God who gave us these scriptures and the transcendentals contained within them is 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 such that knowledge can be had beyond what the scriptures say. Okay? It's not, you know, despite what the scriptures say, it's because of what the scriptures say that any discipline can move forward. Now some of it gets rather remote, okay? Uh, but at the same time I think philosophically we can trace the, the the legitimacy of any discipline if it is legitimate to the fact that God has spoken and, and spoken clearly in the scriptures okay so this means that biblical sufficiency renders all disciplines all sciences all the sciences history such subservient to the authority of scripture such that all disciplines find their legitimacy in the biblical worldview. There's no such thing as neutral history or neutral science that can be done irrespective of God. The reason science works is because God made everything. Okay, so you can't cede your authority the, the authority here to the individual who's working independently of God. So sufficiency of Scripture means more than just that the Bible tells us everything we need to do in church and everything that we need to do to be holy people. It gives us the the, 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 the preconditions of intelligibility in every discipline in in which we work. And so the Scriptures, you know, yeah. You know, so when the Scriptures say something about science or history or or geology or so, something of that nature meteorology that doesn't seem to comport with what we know you know then what do we do well we assume that we must have done the science incorrectly okay because the bible speaks to everything and when it speaks of anything it speaks with absolute uh, truthfulness, and so that's why it's sometimes called the queen of the sciences. You know, theology. Have you ever heard that phrase? Theology is the queen of the sciences. That is, it's the first of the sciences, and the and the and the, and the discipline that makes all of the other sciences possible. So that's that's if you hear that phrase, that's what that's what is meant by that. It's first and most important, and the one that gives all the rest of the disciplines. Their legitimacy. So, the truth system contained in Scripture is such that it can validate or invalidate truth claims external to themselves. Okay, so, if it says, you know, if we say here the the Earth is, you know, so many million years old, well, no, Scripture says that's not true. It, it, despite what would appear to be the case if we, you know, extrapolate the. Current conditions and the rates of change and and and, and uh, you know uh, you know the, the, the fossil record and such. If those things have been continuing at a uniform rate for for millions and millions of years, then yes, the Earth has to be such and such an age. But the Bible says no. There are other factors in place, other explanations for that data, and the Bible's right. It has to be. Because it is the one that renders legitimate or illegitimate any of the other conclusions that are brought up by the rest of the disciplines. Even though it doesn't actually say everything it could, it is an arbiter over all truth. As Vian Van Til was fond of saying, the Bible speaks to everything. It It doesn't speak about everything, but it speaks to Everything. More specifically, he notes that the Bible in the infallibly inspired revelation of God to sinful men stands before us as that light in terms of which all the facts of the created universe must be interpreted. And I think this is included here under this idea of sufficiency. So uh, uh, I've got a little bit more robust understanding of of, of sufficiency than some include in, in their Systems of theology, but uh, I, th- I think it's something that can be defended here. Uh, that sufficiency is more than just that the Bible says everything we need to know spiritually. It actually, it's actually much more comprehensive than that. <clears throat> does that follow? Does that make sense? Nor does sufficiency finally preclude the possibility of progressive revelation while the scriptures were at every point in history sufficient for mankind in his particular setting god's specific expectations of mankind were not static resulting in the need for additional revelation so uh you know as we're working along we have the scriptures that are being added to and uh and uh, and so because what something changed you know the dispensational program changes and so as a result there has to be new information new data in order to explain what God's expectations are actually I, I've actually rethought one of this statement here uh, both frame and Grudem talk about the sufficiency of scripture being absolute at any point in history so you know if you were living in 500 BC yeah you had enough of the scriptures there to be sufficient for your place in history I'm not sure I've I'm actually rethinking that because the Old Testament saint was given means of revelation beyond what the scriptures were. So you've got things like prophets whom you could consult and find out information. We've got this Urim and Thummim, and I know this. I know it's a it's sort of a mysterious thing here. But uh, I was just I just preached on on Sunday at the church I'm preaching at. In Ezra two, they were trying to figure out who was who was who were real Jews and who were frauds, and it was really important because there's this promise that God is going to preserve His people in in terms of tribes and families, and so you know they come back from exile and they want to know who's in and who's out in terms of the covenant promises. And there were some families that, you know, they lost their paperwork in all the melee of the, of the exile. They didn't have it. They, they couldn't prove who they were. And it was really important that they know, and so they actually consulted the Urim and the Thumim. Now there's a lot of debates to exactly how that worked. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to solve that. I'm not going to answer the question or solve the problem here. But, enough, but I, I know enough to say this. They were able to get data, information from God, that they could not have by ordinary means, okay? And so they got this information from God because there is a sense in which the Scriptures were not sufficient in that day, in the same sense that they are today. Uh, we have we have an absolute sufficiency such that there is no need for anything else. We don't have a Urim. Uh, we don't have we don't have prophets uh, because we have an absolutely. Uh, absolutely uh, sufficient Word of God. Okay. Implications of scriptural sufficiency, and perhaps here's where we blow it open here. If there's questions, they'll probably show up here. Both, here's the first implication that both the canon, that is the Bible, and the universe are closed. You might say, Wow, where did the universe come here? Well if indeed the Bible is sufficient as it stands, it cannot countenance any further changes to the created order with to which it speaks with perpetual sufficiency. If the world is changing, you know, if if the universe is changing fundamentally, then the Bible would have to change to keep up. Okay. So the universe is closed. Okay, there's there's not additional creation going on, uh, and, and any evolution that could possibly be in place here has to be what, it, what's sometimes called the micro variety. Okay. We're not actually seeing changes that are fundamental in nature. I mean, you're, there might be, you know, it's, you know, a, 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 you know, a set of dogs and some particular that live in the desert might, you know, you know, develop Certain, you know, resistance to heat or something that uh, that that they don't have now. So there might be a, a micro evolution of sorts, but there cannot be any sort of fundamental changes to the world order, or else the Bible would not be sufficient any longer. So it cannot countenance changes to the created order that would require additions to its message. So the universe is closed. If the canon can be, if the canon is going to be closed, and if the canon is going to be closed, then the universe has to be closed. Which brings our second implication, which is probably the most, uh, the the more, uh, you know, controversial of the two here. Additional revelation is not only unnecessary but also unwelcome. It's unnecessary because we have everything we need. If we have all, everything we need. There's nothing else that we need that we could possibly get through other means of special revelation, prophecy, or tongues, or whatever the case may be. So it's not only unnecessary, but also unwelcome. unwelcome. God has given man a book and a brain, a book and an illumined mind, and these together are described as absolutely sufficient, immediately rendering suspicious all other additional revelations. We, we talked about this just a few minutes ago here so anytime that someone comes along and says you know God told me X uh, I, my, my, my immediate response is okay if God told you X which I don't think he did but if God told you X and it's something that you need in order to move forward in life then it was already contained in the scripture and if it wasn't, then you're, you're you 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 basically said that I you know the Bible isn't sufficient here, that I need something more, and to the degree that it what I what this new information I have is in conflict with what the scriptures say, it's it's got to be wrong. It's got to be wrong. And so it's so that's why I say here it renders su- suspicious all other additional revelations. at best you know somebody if somebody you know speaks a word from the Lord here in, in uh, you know in, uh, in a church context here, what 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 are the options here? One, he's repeating something that we already have in the scripture because the Bible has everything we need. so okay so that means it's useless. Okay. It might be a mistake because the New Testament prophecy, according to Grudem, can actually have some mistakes in it. Well, that's not—that's not good for us. Or number three, it's—it's it's actually fabricated. Okay, it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's made up and it's untrue. Uh, and so, you know, none of these—none of these—are are very compelling reasons. In fact, they're compelling reasons not to listen to prophecies and and words of revelation. Uh, that uh, that people claim to have, but they're they're actually contrary to this doctrine that is clearly stated in both Timothy and Peter.
1: That would include all these people that say they came back from the dead, yeah, and what they saw in heaven.
0: Right. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't that the you know when when the rich man and Lazarus? Right. Yeah. You know, he's mm-hmm. you know send send my send uh, Lazarus back so that my brothers don't come here. And what's the answer? Mm-hmm. They have the, the they they have Moses and the prophets. They have, they have everything they need. It's, it's not as though somebody coming back is going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they have the sufficient material they need to avoid hell. And Lazarus coming back is, is,
1: can only confuse. It's not going to compel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so would you put a limitation here on the, in this age, these two points apply to yes, this okay. right, church yeah. age. Yes, correct.
0: Yeah, I think I, I don't think it's without without mistake that this is this is Paul's last book and Peter's last book that he's giving this. And th- I think they're anticipating the completed canon. We'll talk about canonization here probably <coughs> next week. Here, uh, but uh, there's an anticipation here that the canon is going to be closed and completed. I think we'll find some fascinating things about this this concept here, hopefully.
1: What about uh, statements like, God told me to go to China? They're, I mean, not, they're not true. <laughs> yeah. <That's> true. <clears throat> the reason I ask about that prophecy was. You because you'll hear missionaries say, well, usually they'll say I was led. Yeah. Which I think is valid to say I was led. Providentially, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: But as far as if with any sort of told specificity, me, yeah. you mean
1: told me, actually talked to me? Or, I, yeah. I don't know, but you'll hear. Or guys will tell women, well, I "God told me I'm to marry you," type thing. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that strongly because people who want to go into mission work, they're looking for direction. They're looking to. I want to be sure that I'm. And in fact, you'll, they'll go to churches and they'll and people will ask them, "Well, how do you how do you know you're supposed to go to Kenya?" And they're looking around for answers, you know, and saying, you know... Uh, and they want to sound spiritual. They want to sound spiritual, and they're trying to think of something, you know, to say about, well, how do you know? The truth is, there's nothing directly from Scripture that'll tell them to go to Kenya or, you know, would be a providential. Here's, But they would be saying, probably, the Holy Spirit's prodding me, or... They might, yeah. They, they might say, They might be. They'd probably say, well, I, they might say, I was reading Scripture, and... Uh, they, they come up with a, they come up with some sort of revelatory thing generally, some sort of revelation that is specific. But I don't think there is any. We don't think there is any specific revelation, you know. To because I, I tell people, I, our family was led to this church, mm-hmm. and it was through a set of circumstances. providential providential. God works in the circumstances of your life to bring you. But if you were to say right now that I had a dream and
0: and there was a you know a thirteen foot man telling you go yeah. to community Bible Church, Stay then out. I would say, you know, I've I've, I've got some problems with that. <laughs> but as say, so here we're talking about specific data, new specific propositional data that that is not ongoing. God's still yeah, working in His that, providence. Sure. God still does work and lead in His providence, uh, just not in this specific propositional way.
1: But the reason I ask about in this age is only because in the Book of Revelation, there's going to be prophecy in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. So we will get new revelation. So, so obviously, Scripture is not sufficient for that day. Right. <laughs> because God will see fit to give people new, more information that they. You know, that they need, mm-hmm. that they think they need, you know.
0: Because there will be changes to the world order, yeah. right?
1: So the, yeah. you,
0: know, you said the canons closed because the world is closed, the universe yeah. is closed. Well, when God steps in and reorders things, mm-hmm. well, then we do need new information. Well because... the
1: same? Well, yeah. that would that have been the same? So Old Testament, right? They had made everything they need in the Old Testament, right? Right. And so then when Christ came.
0: Except that they did have. Means beyond the scripture to get yeah. information in the know. Old Testament, okay. so I'm not. I'm not sure it's quite exactly the same. Um, we don't have the same claims of sufficiency in the Old Testament either. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. I'm
1: complete. in a practical sense, what it, they did have, what they needed for life and godliness. The in general, they had the scriptures. Mm-hmm. They, they knew how to please God. They had, in the sense that they, they could be sanctified and grow. Right. <laughs> they had what they needed for their spiritual lives, for the most part. Right. For the most part. Yeah.
0: Okay. Oh, boy. Should we. Let's, let's try and do this. I'm trying to do preservation here. You're led, you're led to continue. I was led to continue. I saw that Hank Combs there. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Helpful little article that he wrote here a number of years ago on preservation of scripture, which I borrowed some material here from. So here's the corollary and and now we're we're getting we're getting to the point where there's 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 precious little biblical data that says the bible will be preserved. We might have some verses that speak to portions of the bible here and there, but we're we're really we're really getting we're really getting thin with this. Actually in our next point canonicity, we're going to say there aren't any. There's no list somewhere that says what the 27 books of the new testament are. So how do we find it, you know? Well, I think we're, we're really dependent at this point on the corollary to tell us that there is such a thing as canonicity and the assurance that we've, we've got Okay, Preservation, there are at least some verses that sort of hint at it at least. Uh, but I think we, we're starting to lean much more heavily now on the corollary. Since God's purpose and inspiration, the truth said, was to provide a deposit of truth, That now we'll, we'll add the, the new data here, that thoroughly equips believers in every age, it follows that we have to be able to get at this information, right? So it has to be preserved for us, or else his purpose in inspiration would be thwarted. He's trying to give us everything necessary for life and godliness in this age. It follows that we can get this, this information. It's been preserved for us. So evidence here, biblical evidence, and I, I came I come short of biblical proof texts here, but there's some evidence here a large number of texts, to which many appeal, we've already cited several of them early along, that don't really speak to uh, the preservation of Scripture, you know, the the, the jot and the tittle and and such, which we said were really speaking more to the fact that the Bible continues to be authoritative until all of it is fulfilled or completed. So the idea, it's not so much that the Bible is going to be preserved word for word, but rather that it's going to be abidingly certain and authoritative. Okay, there are at least two passages that seem to point directly to preservation of the Word of God itself, but they're they're limited, and in that they only speak to the Torah, the Pentateuch. Uh, and and there's actually some who would look at these verses and say, I'm not sure that it even. Speaks to the preservation of, of that. So that, that, that's look at them. Psalm 119, 152, and 160. Remember, Psalm 119 is, is all about the word. So it is, uh, it's mentioned in nearly every verse there. But Psalm 119, you established your statutes to last forever, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Um, and so these verses do seem to suggest that the, the data, the information, that the words themselves are going to be perpetuated. Uh, I, you notice here that I have this fellow by the name of Ed Glennie who wrote an article here, uh, back in 2001. He, he denies even these verses speak to preservation, saying that these again are just speaking to authority. You establish the, these, these statutes are going to be authoritative forever. Uh, that every one of your righteous ordinances stands as an ordinance doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be written down and preserved in in verbal form, but God's expectations don't change. In any case, the the direct biblical argument for its own preservation, if it's there at all, is very thin. It would seem that the corollary from inspiration is much more important here than direct biblical proof texts. The question then is how is this preservation perpetuated? How How is it that God preserved his word? And there's a lot of debate about this. Obviously the Bible has been preserved in some sense. We've got it sitting here in front of us here, right? So it's we've got it. As is the case with a variety of ancient texts, the Bible has survived to the present day, and since God is the sovereign controlling force in the universe, we may say that the survival of all these texts is owing to an act of divine providence. providence. We have the Bible here because God made sure it happened. The question under consideration is how God did this. Did he use miraculous means to preserve the Bible, or or did he use ordinary means? Did he did he do something that he didn't you know? Say, there's Plato, Julius Caesar, Tacitus, Josephus. These 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 figures have you know they've their ancient writings that have been preserved as well. Did God do something differently or more uh, for the Scriptures than He did for these? Uh, was there some sort of a miracle that took place to make sure that the Bible was preserved? Basically, I have three views out here, that uh, we can appeal to. The first is the miraculous view. The miraculous or perfect preservation view of the exact words of the scripture in a single manuscript or version, which often will include here some sort of re-inspiration of material. Uh, for instance, you find that kind of language that's used uh, from in King James only uh, circles that the that the King James actually corrects the greek okay corrects the greek and hebrew so if you come and say that's not what the greek and hebrew said <laughs> yes well those were imperfectly preserved god performed a second miracle a second miracle of inspiration to sort of you know you know standardize everything in english and the king james actually is the inspired word of god by a secondary, a, 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 another miracle of God, and if there are, if there is, you know, if there's a tension here between it and some of the Greek and the Hebrew, then we should actually correct the Greek and Hebrew from this re-inspired material. Okay, so the mm-hmm. example here then is the King Reading James only.
1: <laughs> yeah. What, what's the T.R. Uh,
0: Texas Receptus? No. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. It's a well when 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 the uh when the english bible was being translated 16th century i think this 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 collection of texts was made um, in order to make the and and uh, Erasmus took these you know greek texts that he had available to him not necessarily mm-hmm. the best ones but were some that were available to him and he and he put together an, an you know, a, an authorized Greek text. He, you know, he sort of poured through them and put together a Greek text that was the the standard text, and it's largely used in the uh, tra- translation of the King James, though not entirely. Um, and so, some would say, "Okay, well, the King James wasn't perfect, but this, this, this the, the text that's based on is is." Uh, Is is isn't is somehow perfectly preserved? So uh, they're not quite on the same in the same place as the King James only, but they're only a step removed, really. So that's one view that it's miraculous, perfect preservation. Secondly, we've got folks who say there is no doctrine of preservation. You know, it's just, you know, it's you know, it's a it's a great idea, but we don't know for sure whether the Bible was preserved. And then their third view, which is where I'm going to where I'm going to land, and you can see that great theologian Combs is there <laughs> too as well, and it would would say that the Bible was preserved providentially and essentially in the totality of the manuscripts and versions that are you know scattered throughout Christendom, um, and so the Bible is all there, and we've been able to cobble it together. Uh, from 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 these you know these various sources uh, that uh, you know they, they tried as faithful as they as they could to preserve. Of course, there were mistakes made along the way—dozens, hundreds, thousands of mistakes that were made over the course of years. But uh, through all of that, that the essential message of the scripture has been preserved. It's all there. So, analysis here. While many advocates of the first view. Claim not to hold to a miraculous view, but a providential one. But they do so by special pleading. For instance, uh, Hills, who I Wrote the book "The King James Version Defended." Calls for special providence that preserves the Bible infallibly. I, I always look at that word "special providence," and I, I, it's a, it's a it's a slippery word. You, you've got miracle. And you have got providence. Miracle is God acting through primary causation, stepping into the space-time continuum, and making sure things happen in a way they could not have done other ha- happened otherwise. Providence is God working through secondary causation, working through people with indiv- through individuals to actually affect his his plans and his expectations. Okay, and what when when he talks about special providence, I'm not sure what he's talking about. <laughs> It, this is it's binary, you know. It's either miracle or it's secondary causation. There's not an in-between that we can call special providence. And that I, I don't I don't like that phrase. I know some 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 reformed guys use that phrase too, but I just don't I don't like it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So they have he has a special providence that preserves the Bible infallibly. Well that's miracle. This position cries out for a biblical corroboration, historical evidence, and leads to absurd defenses of impossible readings in the scriptures. Now we talk about the straining, straining out, straining at a gnat, which is just wrong, just wrong, and almost expressly demands schism in the church on entirely unsustainable grounds. Special pleading. I think it's the King James. Why do you think it's the King James? Because it's the King James, duh. Uh, well, okay, that's that really wasn't much of an argument, <laughs> you know. Um, it's it's like I say, it's that's what I mean by special pleading. Um, I, I like this one, so I'm going to accept this one. Now, I could come along and say, well, I well, I, I, I agree with you and stuff, but I think it's the NIV. Well, well, who's right? Who can who can who can prove himself right? Well, nobody can. It's special pleading here. While, while, while view 2 is valid strictly from the standpoint of explicit proof texts, there is precious little by way of an exegetical or biblical doctrine of preservation. The corollary, I think, looms large. Just because you don't have a proof text it doesn't mean you can't have the doctrine. Okay? The corollary from the purpose of inspiration seems to demand some sort of doctrine of preservation uh, that we can cling to. The view seems a little bit overreactionary and leaves the believer rather unmoored and uneasy in the outworking of his Christian life. So if you, if you get into a position of leadership uh, in, in in the church, you don't want to unnecessarily... Suggest that the Bible might be incomplete and it might not all be there. It, it's, it's. I think it's just a, it's a bad idea. Not only do I think it's a wrong idea, but I think it's a, it's, it's practically a very foolish thing to do. And that's part, part of the reason it, your pastor rarely brings, you know, debates about, you know, words. You know, is this the right word? This might not be the right word here. You know, it could be a different word. You know, probably doesn't say that. You know, I guess I haven't heard him preach all that many times, but but he probably doesn't say that very much because of the effect that it has on people. That says, you know, can I trust my Bible? Well, you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. There are, are there discrepancies here and there of of words that you know that are, that you know scholars are divided which word it's supposed to be. Yeah, okay doesn't mean that it hasn't been preserved it's to, but and, and and I think it's probably unwise to, to to really continue to iteratively point this out all the time okay so while there may be a sense that there is no biblical doctrine of preservation I think we can say theologically there is is one so light view 3 then becomes the most defensible position it moves preservation out of the realm. It, it, well, into the realm of normal providence, eliminating the need for miracle or re-inspiration. Secondly, it calls for the preservation of the essential message of the scriptures, leaving room for imperfect translations, transcription, typographical errors, etc. But leaving intact everything necessary for life and godliness. Okay, there there might might be you know misspellings and and words askew here and there, but the essential message. Is there? Okay, everything necessary for life and godliness is there, and then thirdly, it accords with all the the historical fact that there is no one manuscript text type version or translation that is demonstrably perfect. Okay, there is there is none anywhere. We don't have the manuscripts anymore. We have, uh, you know, very good copies and translations and such that we have and, and that, that that we can use, but not none of them can boast perfection. Okay? Thoughts on that? Preservation. <coughs> you wrote the article. Do you have anything more to add there?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could add, but I don't think anybody wants to listen. <laughs> but as they find pieces of manuscripts it supports <clears throat> the preservation idea I mean they, right yeah, in general I mean, yes mm-hmm. right. what's interesting is uh, uh, you know Wallace makes this point that we found a lot of manuscripts in the last 130 years there's these things called the papyri papyrus manuscripts that were found beginning in the late 1800s going up through now about 136 of them some of them are the oldest portions of the New Testament, like the Gospel of John. There's a portion, some would date to 125. So, but the truth is, none of these have actually changed the text of Scripture one bit. That is, even though we have found these manuscripts and they differ, they haven't given us any new words that we didn't know about before. They may, they may change. Okay, um, Paul probably wrote this word versus this word but it's not like hey here's we didn't know this before you know it's it's a remarkable how that even as we advance in textual criticism uh, it hasn't changed as as much as you might think it would be you know it's pretty well preserved so. archaeological finds have also proven a lot of the texts to be true yeah. like they've found things around Jerusalem that were mentioned in the Bible yeah. Historical persons, right? Historical places. And so forth.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well we're moving towards the end here, so uh we've got a couple of was it two more? Or I don't know. one do we... more two more.